0: Hello, welcome to the Bore You To Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Our Street, written by William Makepeace Thackeray and published in 1848. This story looks at life in London during the mid-1800s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background, while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to all the listeners who reached out during the week. It's so great to hear from those who receive benefit from the podcast, and it's such a compliment when you're able to leave a review or rating in your podcast app. I hope the new year has started off particularly well for all of you. As always, I am truly grateful to the listeners that support the show with a monthly contribution on Patreon or Anchor. The podcast is completely free, and it is thanks to listeners like you that allow me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you find the podcast beneficial and would like to become a patron or sponsor, Please visit boytosleep.com. Whether it's $1 or $5, your support is truly appreciated. I do understand that not everybody can support the show with a financial contribution. However, there is a small but hugely helpful favor that you can provide. Please share the podcast with a friend and kindly leave a review in your podcast app my mission is to help everybody out there get the rest that they need and there are a lot of people who are struggling with sleep if you would like you can always say hello to me at boyytosleep.com I'm also on twitter and instagram at boyytosleep in the meantime lie back relax and enjoy the readings. Our Street by M. A. Titmarsh Our street, from the little nook which I occupy in it, and whence I and a fellow lodger and friend of mine cynically observe it, presents a strange motley scene we are in a state of transition. We are not as yet in the town, and we have left the country where we were when I came to lodge with Mrs. Camisole, my excellent landlady. I then took second-floor apartments at number 17 Waddy Love Street, and since, although I have never moved, I find myself living at number 46A, Pocklington Gardens. Why is this? Why am I to pay 18 shillings instead of 15? I was quite as happy in Waddy Love Street. But the fact is, a great portion of that venerable old district has passed away and we are being absorbed into the splendid new white-stuccoed Doric porticoed genteel Pocklington Quarter. Sir Thomas Gibbs Pocklington, MP, for the borough of Lath and Plaster, is the founder of the district and his own fortune. The Pocklington Estate Office is in the square on a line with Waddell, with Pocklington Gardens, I mean. The old inn, the ram and magpie, where the market gardeners used to bait, came out this year with a new white face and title, The Shield of the Pocklington Arms. Such a shield it is, such quarterings, Howard, Cavendish, De Rose, De La Zouche, all mingled together. Even our house forty six A, which Mrs. Camisole has had painted white in complement to the gardens, of which it now forms part of, is a sort of impostor, and has no business to be called gardens at all. Mr. Gibbs, Sir Thomas's agent and nephew, is furious at our daring to take the title, which belongs to our betters. The very next door, number 46, the Honourable Mrs. Mountnoddy, is a house of five stories, shooting up proudly into the air. Thirty feet above our old high-roofed, low-roomed old tenement, it belongs to Captain Bragg. Not only the landlord, but the son-in-law of Mrs. Camisole, who lives a couple of hundred yards down the street at the bungalow. He was the commander of the Ramchunda East India Man and has quarrelled with the Pocklingtons ever since he bought houses in the parish. He it is who will not sell or alter his houses to suit the spirit of the times. He it is who, though he made the widow Camisole change the name of her street, will not pull down the house next door, nor the bakers next, nor the iron bedstead and feather warehouse ensuing, nor the little barbers with the pole, nor, I am ashamed to say, the tripe shop still standing. The barber powders the heads of the great footmen from Pocklington Gardens. They are so big, that they can scarcely sit in his little premises. And the old tavern, the East Indiaman, is kept by Bragg's ship steward, and protests against the Pocklington Arms. Down the road is Pocklington Chapel, Reverend Oldham Slocum in Brick, with arched windows and a wooden balfry, sober, dingy and hideous. In the centre of Pocklington Gardens rises St. Walthof's, the Reverend Cyril Thurphy, and assistants, a splendid Anglo-Norman edifice, vast, rich, elaborate, brand-new and intensely old, down Mary Lane, you may hear the clink of the little Romish chapel bell. And hard by is a large, broad-shouldered Ebenser, out of the windows of which the hymns come booming all Sunday long. Going westward along the line, we come presently to Dean House, on a part of the gardens of which Commandine Gardens is about to be erected by his lordship, farther on, the pineries, Mr. and Lady Mary Mango, and so we get into the country and out of our street altogether, as I may say, but in the half mile over which it may be said to extend, we find all sorts and conditions of people, from the right honourable Lord Commandine down to the present Topographer, who, being of no rank as it were, has the fortune to be treated on almost friendly footing by all. From his Lordship down to the tradesman, our house in our street, we must begin our little descriptions, where they say charity should begin at home. Mrs. soul my landlady, will be rather surprised when she reads this and finds that a good-natured tenant who has never complained of her impositions for fifteen years understands every one of her tricks and treats them not with anger but with scorn silent scorn On the 18th of December 1837 for instance, coming gently downstairs, and before my usual wont, I saw you seated in my armchair, peeping into a letter that came from my aunt in the country, just as if it had been addressed to you, and not to M. A. Titmarsh, Esquire. Did I make any disturbance? Far from it. I slunk back to my bedroom. Being enabled to walk silently in the beautiful pair of worsted slippers Miss Penelope J.S. worked for me. They are worn out now, dear Penelope. And then, rattling open the door with a great noise, descended the stairs, singing at the top of my voice. You were not in my sitting room, Mrs. Camisole, when I entered that apartment. You have been reading all my letters, papers, manuscripts, articles for the Morning Post and Morning Chronicle, invitations to dinner and tea, all my family letters, all Eliza Townley's letters, from the first in which she declared that to be the bride of her beloved Michelangelo was the fondest wish of her maiden heart, to the last in which she announced that her Thomas was the best of husbands and signed herself Eliza Slogger, all Mary Farmer's letters, all Emily Delamere's, all the poor foolish old Miss McWeathers, whom I would as marry soon in a word. I know that you, you hawk beaked, keen eyed, sleepless old Mrs Camisole, have read all my papers for these years. I know that you cast your curious old eyes over all the manuscripts which you find in my coat pockets and those of my pantaloons as they hang in a drapery over the door handle of my bedroom. I know that you count the money in my green and gold purse which Lucy Nederville gave me, and speculate on the manner in which I have laid out the difference between today and yesterday. I know that you have an understanding with the laundress, to whom you say that you are all-powerful with me, threatening to take away my practice from her, Unless she gets up gratis some of your fine linen. I know that we both have a penny worth of cream for breakfast, which is brought in the same little can, and I know who has the most for her share. I know how many lumps of sugar you take from each pound as it arrives. I have counted the lumps, you old thief, and for years have never said a word except to Miss Clapperclaw, the first floor lodger. Once I put a bottle of pale brandy into that cupboard, of which you and I have the only keys, and the liquor wasted and wasted away until it was all gone. You drank the whole of it. You are a lady indeed. I know your rage when they did me the honour to elect me a member of the police office club, and I ceased consequently to dine at home. When I did dine at home, on a beefsteak, let us say, I should like to know what you had for supper. You first amputated portions of the meat when raw. You abstracted more when cooked. Do you think I was taken in by your flimsy pretenses? I wonder how you could dare to do such things before your maids whom you yourself were always charging with roguery. Yes, the insolence of the old woman is unbearable, and I must break out at last. If she goes off in a fit at reading this, I am sure I shan't mind. She has two unhappy wenches, against whom her old tongue is clacking from morning until night. She pounces on them at all hours. It was but this morning at eight, when poor Molly was brooming the steps, and the baker paying her by no means unmerited compliments that my landlady came whirling out of the ground floor front, and sent the poor girl whimpering into the kitchen. Were it but for her conduct to her maids, I was determined publicly to denounce her. These poor wretches she causes to lead the lives of demons, and not content with bullying them all day, she sleeps at night in the same room with them, so that she may have them up before daybreak, and scold them while they are dressing. Certain it is that between her and Miss Clapperclaw, on the first floor The poor wenches led a dismal life. My dear Miss Clapperclaw, I hope you will excuse me for having placed you in the title page of my little book, looking out of your accustomed window and having your eyeglasses ready to spy the whole street, which you know better than any inhabitant of it. It is to you that I owe most of my knowledge of our neighbours. From you it is that most of the facts and observations contained in these brief pages are taken. Many a night over our tea have we talked amiably about our neighbours and their little failings as well and I know that you speak of mine pretty freely, why let me say, my dear Bessie, that if we have not built up our street between us, at least we have pulled it to pieces. The Bungalow, Captain and Mrs. Bragg Long, long ago, when our street was the country, a stagecoach between us and London, passing four times a day. I do not care to own it, that was a sight of Flora Camisole's face, under the card of her mamma's lodgings to let, which first caused me to become a tenant of our street. A fine, good-humoured lass she was then, and I gave her lessons in French and flower painting. She had made a fine rich marriage since, although her eyes have often seemed to me to say, Ah, Mr. T, why didn't you, when there was yet time, and when both of us were free, propose, you know what? Where was the money, my dear madam? Captain Bragg, then occupied in the building bungalow lodge, Bragg, I say, living on the first floor, and entertaining sea captain's merchants and East Indian friends, with his grand ship's plate, being disappointed in a project of marrying a director's daughter, who was also a second cousin once removed of a peer, sent in a fury for Mrs. Camisole, his landlady, and proposed to marry Flora offhand, and settle four hundred a year upon her. Flora was ordered from the back parlour. The ground floor occupies the second floor bedroom and was on the spot made acquainted with the splendid offer which the first floor had made her. She has been Mrs. Captain Bragg these twelve years You see her portrait and that of the brute, her husband, on the opposite side of the page. Bragg to this day wears anchor buttons and has a dress coat with a gold strap for epaulets in case he should have a fancy to sport them. His house is covered with portraits, busts, and miniatures of himself. His wife is made to wear one of the latter. On his sideboard are pieces of plate, presented by the passengers of the Ram Chunda to Captain Bragg. The Ram Chunda East East Indiamen, in a gale of... Off Table Bay, the outward bound fleet under convoy of Her Majesty's frigate Loeb la Lollyboy, Captain Gutch beating off the French squadron under Commodore Leloup, the Ramchunder standing into the holly, with Captain Bragg his telescope. And speaking trumpet on the poop, Captain Bragg presenting the officers of the Ramchunder to General Bonaparte at St. Helena. Titmarsh, this fine piece painting was painted by me when I was in favour with Bragg. In a word, Bragg and the Ramchunder are all over. THE HOUSE. Although I have eaten scores of dinners at Captain Bragg's charge, yet his hospitality is so insolent that none of us who are frequent in his mahogany feel any obligation to our braggart entertainer. After he has given one of his great heavy dinners, He always takes an opportunity to tell you in the most public way how many bottles of wine were drunk. His pleasure is to make his guests tipsy and to tell everybody how and when the period of inebriation arose. And Miss Clapperclaw tells me that he often comes over laughing and giggling to her, and pretending that he has brought me into this condition, a calumny which I fling contemptuously in his face. He scarcely gives any but men's parties, and invites the whole club home to dinner, What is the compliment of being asked when the whole club is asked too? I should like to know. Men's parties are only good for boys. I hate a dinner where there are no women. Bragg sits at the head of his table and bullies the solitary Mrs. Bragg. He entertains us with stories of storms which he brag encountered, of dinners which he brag has received from the governor general of India, of jokes which he brag has heard, and however stale or odious they may be, poor Mrs B is always expected to laugh. Woe to be her if she doesn't, or if she laughs at anybody else's jokes. I have seen Bragg go up to her and squeeze her arm with a savage grind of his teeth, and say with an oath, Hang it, madam, how dare you laugh when any man but your husband speaks to you. I forbid you to grin in that way. I forbid you to look sulky. I would like if you were happy. I desire you will not be traipsing through the rooms. I order you not to sit as still as a stone. He curses her if the wine is corked or if the dinner is spoiled or if she comes a minute too soon to the club for him, or arrives a minute too late. He forbids her to walk except upon his arm, and the consequence of his ill-treatment is that Mrs. Camisole and Mrs. Bragg respect him beyond measure and think him the first of human beings I never knew a woman who was constantly bullied by her husband, who did not like him the better for it. Miss Clapperclaw said this, and though this speech has some of Clapp's usual sardonic humor in it, I can't but think there is some truth in the remark. Mr. Rumbled and Miss Rumbled. When Lord Levant quitted the country and this neighbourhood, in which the tradesmen still deplore him, number 56, known as Levantine House, was let to the Poco Curante Club, which was speedily bankrupt. It was subsequently hired by the West Diddlesex Railroad, and is now divided into sets of chambers, superintended by an acrimonious housekeeper, and by a porter in a sham livery, who, if you won't find him at the door, you may as well seek at the Grapes Public House, in the little lane round the corner, he varnishes the Japan boots of the dandy lodges, reads Mr. Pinky's morning post before he lets him have it, and neglects the letters of the inmates of the chambers generally. The great rooms which were occupied as the salons of the noble Levant, the coffee rooms of the Poco Curante Club and the boardroom, at the manager's room of the West Diddlesex, are now tenanted by a couple of artists, Young Pinky, the miniaturist, and George Rumbled, the historical painter. Miss Rumbled, his sister, lives with him, by the way, but with that young lady, of course, we have nothing to do. I knew both these gentlemen at Rome when George wore a velvet doublet and a beard down to his chest and used to talk about high art at the Café Greco, how it smelled of smoke, that velvetine doublet of his, with which his stringy red beard was likewise perfumed, it was in his studio that I had the honour to be introduced to his sister, the fair Miss Clara. She had a large casque with a red horsehair plume, I thought it had been a wisp of her brother's beard at first, and held a tin-headed spear in her hand, representing a Roman warrior in the great picture of Caricatuus George, was painting a piece 64 feet by 18. The Roman warrior blushed to be discovered in that attitude, so she put it down and, taking off the helmet also, went and sat in a far corner of the studio, mending George's stockings whilst we smoked a couple of pipes and talked about Raphael being a good deal overrated. I think he is and have never disguised my opinion about the transfiguration and all the time we talked there were Clara's eyes looking lucidly out from the dark corner in which she was sitting, working away at the stockings. That lucky fellow, they were in a dreadful state of bad repair when she came out to him at Rome. After the death of their father, the Reverend Miles rumbled. George, while at Rome, painted caricatures a picture of non-Anglie said angly, and of course, a picture of Alfred in the Nethods College, 72 feet by 48. An idea of the gigantic size and Michael Angelesque proportions of this picture may be formed. When I state that the Mere Muffin of which the outcast king is spoiling the baking, is two feet three in diameter, and the deaths of Socrates, of Remus, and of the Christians under Nero, respectively. I shall never forget how lovely Clara looked in white muslin, with her hair down in this latter picture, giving herself up to ferocious carnifex, and refusing to listen to the mild suggestions of insinuating Flamen, which character was a gross caricature of myself. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, you're always welcome to listen to another episode. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. In the meantime, good night.